You're listening to the Culture Feed Podcast, reflections on cultivating student character and student citizenship in our schools. Welcome to the Culture Feed Podcast. We launch our podcast series today with an interview of Dr. Jeffrey Gouin. Dr. Gouin is an assistant professor of sociology at UCLA and the author of research that examines the efforts of a sample of U.S. urban public schools to shape their students' character and citizenship. In this episode, the first part of a two-part interview, Dr. Gouin is interviewed by Angus Macbeth, a former public school teacher, principal, and superintendent in Canada. Macbeth and Gouin cover topics like the importance of teachers, the idea of a moral invisible hand, the school's divided view of the good life, and more. Here is part one of the interview. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm with Dr. Jeff Gouin, Assistant Professor of Sociology at UCLA Los Angeles. Have I got that right? Uh, sure. UCLA Los Angeles is a bit redundant, but that's fine. Thank you for taking your time this afternoon to talk about Culture Feed, and especially to talk about the research work you did in support of the book, The Content of Their Character. We studied uh, about 10 sectors in total, and you were responsible, through your research, to study uh, six urban American high schools. Right. And they were located in Charlotte, North Carolina, South San Diego, California, and New York City, New York. And, and you made a number of visits to these schools? Yeah, I was in each one for, uh, I was in each city for approximately three months. I was in New York City for a little bit longer. Um, but yeah, I was in, I made around 15 to 20 visits to each school. And do you think anything escaped you? Sure, of course. I think I think most things escaped me. I mean, honest, not most things, but a lot. I mean, I'm I, I'm trained as a as an ethnographer, and so that's not really enough time um, to do what most people would consider as serious ethnography. So, you know, I I, I wish I had been there longer, but this is the challenge of of this kind of broader comparative study. So, just pluses and minuses. So the majority of our audience on culturefeed.com and on the Facebook page, Culture Feed Facebook page, are teachers and principals, some superintendents, school boards, oh, members, wow. school board chairs. And they read, they will be watching this interview. And so because they may not, will not have read the content of their character, I wonder if you could tell me what was your purpose in visiting for this for such a long time? These six American high schools, and these were sample high schools, mm. urban high schools. Right. So I would first say that to, to anyone watching um, uh, who is not my mom, thank you very much for watching um, and, and and listening. And uh, certainly, I think the the book is is worth reading, uh, despite my being in it. Um, so I would, yeah, I would encourage um, people to look at the book. It's, it's really exciting. A uh, study of of ten cases, um, sort of organized and shepherded by James Davison Hunter um, and others at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, um, asking up questions about moral formation and citizenship in, in various school sectors. And so, originally, um, 
we had thought public schools would be one sector, but the more we thought about it, the more we, re we realized that urban schools and rural schools are, are very different situations. And so, and really suburban schools are actually a third piece that it would have been better to have um, tried to look at a bit, bit more than we did. Um, I got a little bit of suburban schools of mine, but not, not enough. Um, so honestly, that would have been a third sector. Uh, and then charter schools were separate as well. Um, but you know, the 10 case studies project was predominantly um, religious cases, uh, but then also homeschooling, charter schools, uh, rural public schools, in my case, urban public schools. And I chose uh, these three cities in consultation with um, Carl Bowman and James Hunter. I'm thinking about, um, you know, some geographic diversity, um, and also schools that had really been thinking about their school districts that had been thinking about education reform um, pretty seriously. And, and San Diego, Charlotte and New York City are all famous schools for ed reform or famous districts for ed reform. And then, you know, when I was in the schools, I just kind of hung out, sat in the back, observed class classes, interviewed quite a few students and teachers in each school um, and got a sense of how things worked. Thank you. And my first real question is, were there any surprises you encountered in these schools that you had not in expected in mm -hmm. terms of how moral formation is uh, attempted and or achieved? So was there anything you didn't expect? And I don't know what you brought to the this right. school sector in terms of what your foreknowledge was, but were there any surprises that you encountered Oh, I had expected this and I found this through the research. Sure, sure. I was surprised by how many, um, by how apologetic or dismissive teachers were about their role in society. Um, I, I the, the way teachers are sort of trumpeted as moral heroes by certain people. Um, and I guess, you know, they're described as evil leeches by others, but I've always deeply admired teachers. I was a high school teacher for a while. Um, there's a part of me that wishes I still was a high school teacher, and and I thought it was interesting the degree to which um, teachers emphasized their being a teacher as simply one profession among many. Um, in in a, in a way that in hindsight is actually deeply democratic. Um, there's a way that, you know, priests and nuns do this now too, right? That like, I'm, this is my way of serving God, but maybe you do it your way, right? Um, and, and, and there's a way that that makes a lot of sense and not to be stereotypical, but goes all the way back to Tocqueville and his early study of American equality, you know, not telling anyone else what they do is worse or, or better. Um, but I actually think that's wrong. I think teachers are better than a lot of people. I think they're committed to helping others um, and, and doing work for the, the demos for society in a way a lot of people aren't. A lot of people only help the world to the extent the world is their family and they're very dedicated to their family and a small circle of friends and everything else is their own personal self-advancement and teachers are actually deeply committed to having their career be in service. Um, I find that incredibly admirable and actually a better way of living than other ways of living. And um, it was interesting to me how when I said that to teachers, it made them uncomfortable. They didn't want to say their way of living was actually super, I mean, some did, but most would say this is my way of, of being my best self, but 
who am I to say, you know, what's the best way to live? So, so do you think they were modest then, some of them? Modest or self-deprecating? They might have been modest and self-deprecating. It's possible. But I think there's actually a bigger sociological thing at play. I think that there's actually a, a, a deep um, kind of American institution of individualism that really makes it hard for us to make strong judgments about others' life choices. Um, and, and, you know... The older I get, the more ambivalent I am about things. I, in some ways, that's good. In some ways, that's bad, right? I, I, I think it's it's better than having a, a very judgmental series of interactions all the time when people tell me you're living, tell when people tell each other they're living the wrong life, but- Or pointlessly, right. Yeah, but also it's it's just interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that is actually a better life. And it's interesting to me that um, the justification for being a teacher is, one means of self-actualization and one means of sort of vocational fulfillment among many versus actually morally superior to other choices. Thank you. I Moving on, you indicated that your research produced a straightforward result. Mm -hmm. You found that urban public schools were dedicated to two layers of morality, a commitment to helping for teachers and to self-actualization for students. Can you please help un me understand and others what you mean by that? Yeah, so, um, and, and you see this reflected um, kind of all the way up. And so certainly for me as a sociologist of education, this shows up consistently in the sociology of education literature as well, not explicitly, but implicitly. And then it also shows up in, um, a substantial amount of the uh, ed reform literature um, and and discourse and discussion. Um, so basically what it means is we want students to have agency. That's really what it means. We want students to feel like they're capable of making choices um, and able to commit to those choices and to follow through with grit or whatever word you want to use um, to be functioning members of society. and. Uh, Certainly, though, at least the way the teachers think about it and a lot of the way that a lot of the education reformers think about it, they really want students to succeed. They only want students to go to college, to, to, to thrive, to have as many options as possible, to really have a, a robust sense of agency and capacity to, to be who they want to be. Um, yet what's interesting about that is, is, is um, it's a lot of means with very little end. There's there's not there's not really a, a really robust sense of what that agency is towards, or or about um, the kinds of people they should be once they enter the middle class or get into college. Now it's they should do that, uh, and that's that's the general concern. Um, but but what they do when they're there is kind of left up to them, and there's kind of a a sense of what I call in the in the essay the moral invisible hand. This kind of idea that if everyone is their best self, magically society kind of works itself out, and we don't have to think hard questions about what the good life is, or or the kinds of people we should be, or the kinds of people we should form students into being. Um, so that's for students, but then for for teachers, um, there is uh, you know a sense of of compassion, of of care, of of, of of wanting students to be better. You know, most of the teachers I encountered, they became 
teachers because they care about kids and they, and they want kids to, to succeed. Um, and again, what was interesting to me was that the, the lack of a need to to translate that caring from a teacher level to the uh, student level. The one thing that did have to translate was respect. And so you had to treat each other with respect in the classroom. And this, to, to use a, a political theory term, um, this is an example of, of what John Stuart Mill, um, the liberal philosopher, a philosopher in, in some ways helped develop liberalism, uh, calls the harm principle. And so the really key idea here is that you can't harm anybody. It just society's not gonna work if we harm each other. So we have to, to sort of commit to not harming each other. And, and a kind of slightly more positive version of that is everyone needs to be treated with at least respect. Um, and I think that's great, obviously. And, and again, a good, just like the commitment to students' agency, it's a, it's a necessary starting place. And there are far too many schools that don't have that. Um, but one of the challenges, of course, is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't do much by, by itself. Um, it's a good starting place, but it's just a starting place. And the example I give a lot is if a girl is alone crying at a lunch table um, and your school has a robust anti-bullying program, um, via the harm principle, you can't, or the anti-bullying program, you can't walk up and hit that kid or tease her for crying. Um, and you might be positively obligated to stop her from being bullied if you see someone doing it. But you have no positive obligation to walk up and check on her. You have no positive obligation to go be nice to her and see why she's suffering or what's wrong. Um, that would go beyond uh, just agency or beyond the harm principle or beyond anti-bullying uh, policies to actually think more robustly about citizenship uh, and more robustly about democracy. And when I say democracy, I, I don't necessarily mean um, just voting. No, and I don't necessarily mean what it means in the original Greek, which is ruled by the people. Um, what I mean, it really mean is the demos itself, right? Like the, the commitment to being a citizen and part of a community um, and thinking about your robust relationships uh, within that community and obligations to that community. So it, so what you didn't see were students in these public schools that you studied going out of their way, feeling obligated, feeling a sense of, uh, need to care and help others who were in some form of distress. The focus was they might do yep. that, but but it wasn't something you would expect them to do, nor did you see them do consistently. I mean, no, they were, you know, kids. There were a lot of kids that really felt like they had friends. There were people who knew them, who would check on them if they were sad. There's certainly, you know, for for many many of the students, it was they were they were very nice communities. But um, for other students, they weren't right, and and there wasn't necessarily a commitment among the students to um, to help those kids or to be there for those kids or to to think about their obligations to them. And so um, there's a way that a smaller school or a school with a more robust sense of identity um, can think of itself more along those sort of tighter communal lines um, than a larger public, especially a large public school. But was it apparent in any of the schools you studied that there was a deliberate program, a deliberate orientation, a deliberate plan uh -huh. for encouraging all students to develop a sense of citizenship and morality that extended to helping others in need? 
Mm-hmm. Or was that incidental or more a byproduct or happenstance or yeah. it was nice if it happened? Right. I would say it was generally incidental. I would say there were a few mechanisms like at one of the schools I studied um, in, in in New York, uh, there was a real commitment to conflict resolution. So that's still kind of an after the fact thing. But there, but there was hair. Right. Right. But there was a, a real commitment to sort of robust repair because, you know, there is a real problem in low income schools of of um, of school expulsions and suspensions leading to eventually leading to prison time and all sorts right. of, of real problems there. And people call it the school to prison pipeline. And so, you know, thinking about how we can do that in different ways is, is very important. Um, and and so there was, you know, and so there were there were, you know, programs like that. There were also um, there was a school where they wore bracelets to sort of indicate um, if they were the kind of person you could talk to um, if you were having a bad day or something. So, I mean, like things like that showed up, um, but they were all um, either kind of after the fact or 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 um, or bottom up in certain kinds of ways. Um, and, and teachers were impressed by it when it happened. I mean, the teachers liked it. Right. It's not like they thought that was silly. They were really excited about it, but it was sort of always felt of a secondary to the school's primary goal, which is test scores and college placement. I mean, that is really why the schools exist. Are we getting the kids into college? Uh, Are we making sure they do well on these tests? Um, So, and that was such a, a constant concern in these schools that it was, it was very hard for teachers to, to, and even students to, to feel, um, really empowered to do much of anything else. I wondered if um, if there were any schools you studied where they thought that attention to moral formation in students, to uh, character building, to citizenship building, was in fact at the expense of the work to get good test scores. were they mutually exclusive or did some people feel I mean all of um, them all of them I would say all I would say almost every teacher I talked to would say this is the kind of stuff that I got into teaching to do and I I just don't have time right. or the energy or or or, the, or or I lack the language um sort of talk about it um and 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 I should be be clear here I mean it's never a question of whether kids are moral. It, it's for me as a sociologist of morality, it's a question of how they're moral, right? Like very few people are immoral. I mean, maybe certain sociopaths or something don't have any real commitment, but everyone has a certain vision of a good life, a certain understanding of what a successful human being in a human life looks like, right? And 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 the challenge is that they often differ, right? And and part of the trick of, of public education is is and um, and just democratic education is is getting people to sort of coexist um, with each other uh, amidst those differences and getting people to be committed to the community in general. Um, and you know that is one of the challenges of a liberal education, liberal in the very broad sense of not left wing or even right wing, but just focused on individual rights is, um, you know, who, who are you to say that my kid should, should care about people, right? Like what, why should my kid care about that kid at the lunch table? That's not his job, 
that's not why he's paid. Doesn't mm -hmm. the school have doesn't the school have counselors who can deal with that? Like my right. kid's job is to do look the best after himself. Can, look right. after himself, do the best he can, you know, get into college, be very wealthy, and then pay taxes, and then his taxes will go and help people. Right. And then he's doing his job. And who are you to tell me that my kid should help this girl or right. should spend time outside of his school day to um, do things unrelated to, you know, his later his goal. personal achievement. Right. So did you get the sense that there was pressure on schools not to pursue uh, altruism because of parental discontent with with that or or was that it was just fear a... i didn't actually i mean it was interesting that's certainly what i heard yeah teachers would say well parents wouldn't like it i never heard parents not liking it though i mean it's it, it was something people brought up um as a kind of future potential future criticism but i didn't actually i mean i didn't talk to parents that much but i did talk to parents and you know generally that's but they weren't doing it. And and I, and I so maybe that's why the parents didn't bring it up to me. I don't know. I mean, I will say parents, when they complained, did complain a lot about like, you know, there's not enough AP classes or, um, you know, there should be more test prep. So, I mean, parents are and there's a stereotype of 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 um, of suburban, you know, urban parents are somehow totally different than suburban parents. And there's a lot of urban parents of, of kids in very quote unquote low achieving schools or schools with um, very, very high free and reduced lunches, which um, tends to be a lot of how we divide um, right. schools. And these parents are just as, you know, kind of obsessed with achievement, right? As, as parents in the sort of more stereotypical suburban schools, the parents are obsessed with achievement. And so like the achievement bug has, um, has it infected the body politic? Has, has it infected the body politic writ large? Yeah. And so, and I'm sure lots of teachers have identified and experienced this, right? And so um, it's really hard to get around, right? Um, because, I mean, one of the challenges with... There's, there, there's, there, there's obviously, obviously a lot of good to a concept of meritocracy, right? There's a tremendous amount of good to the idea that if you're if, if you're wealthy, you should earn it. If you're rich or important, you should earn it. You shouldn't just have it because you grew up with it. Right. You shouldn't be handed it. It shouldn't just be handed to you. The problem is it still usually is in this society. Um, and the logic of meritocracy can provide a veneer for that to make it seem as though you have earned it. When in reality, you know, you, you were born on third base and thought you hit a triple. And um, and so this way of, of thinking can actually create a massive amount of stress, right? Because stress it, for who? For parents and kids, but okay. especially parents even more than kids. And this is in lots of the literature. Um, and you see this especially actually on literature on first generation college students, um, because if you buy into the meritocratic logic, if you don't make it, it's your fault. And you actually don't deserve the middle class. You don't deserve a college degree, right? You tried and you couldn't cut it, right? And so there are all these ways that um, people like me, who I went to a, a Jesuit prep school and um, had two parents went to college. It was a very middle class kid. Um, I had certain 
um, advantages, advantages and possibilities open for me. And I didn't even really realize that until I got to Yale for graduate school. And then I learned how different the middle class is from the elite, right? Which is a whole other separate universe. And so, I mean, I'm really interested in, in how, um, and, and a lot of sociologists of education like me are interested in how those, those advantages pile up, but then also what I'm interested in that some other sociologists of education aren't as interested in is how those are experienced um, and felt as um, as morally delegitimizing. And, and what I mean by that is if you buy in to the um, meritocracy language completely and you don't have another kind of code or language whether it's religious or, or anything else of kind of self-worth and self-identification. And then you don't get that college or you don't get that job or you don't get that middle class. There's there's no reason for you to be alive. There's no purpose to your existence. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things that really worries me about um, the logic of meritocracy in schools is how it can replace or substitute a deeper um commitment to human dignity um regardless of effort i don't care if you're the laziest kid in that school you're still a good person who deserves dignity and respect right and 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 there's a way that this is very american and it's very old and it's a certain kind of of protestantism um work work equals value right and and so and and i think you know, in many ways that's a good thing i mean i certainly i think have internalized that um but it can also be a very dangerous thing. And um, especially for, for kids, for high school kids, especially for kids for whom the work is hard. Um, and uh, this is a long answer to your question, but- No, no problem. Yeah, that's I guess what I would say about that. Thank you. I was, so I, although this wasn't part of my original idea to ask you this question, I'm beginning to wonder if you think, uh, there, there are many people who, decry modern young people because they they're too privileged they have it too easy everything's handed to them and yet as i listen to you i think there's a lot of pressure on young people in our schools in mm -hmm. high school um did you get the sense that the students in the schools you visited and studied and spent quite a bit of time in um, did you feel the students were privileged? Did you, not privileged economically? Maybe that's not even the right word. Did you think that they were having it too easy? Do you think everything was handed to them? Do you think life was a bowl of cherries, piece of cake, or what? And, and listening to your earlier answer, or do you think they really, most of them, felt the pressure, felt the heat, felt the need to perform, felt the need to measure up? We're aware that the consequences of not working hard might be impoverishment or a, a life without fulfillment. I mean, a significant amount of these kids are on free and reduced lunch. Right. Um, that means they're poor kids, right? Yeah, that means they're low-income kids. Right. And, you know, if you've ever eaten free and reduced lunch and then had friends who don't, um, you know that's not easy. And right. so, uh, you know, Is anybody... humiliating? I mean... I wouldn't say humiliating. There's ways you can sort of hide it and make it look. There's there schools are, are better or better and worse at, at this, right? But um, uh, so there are, there are ways that schools can kind of mask it. Um, but you still know, 
right? And like, and I think a lot of kids get used to it, and it's you know, it's, it's just one thing among many. But there are lots of small ways that growing up low income affects you, right? You have to get a job, and your friends don't. Um, your mom's not around. Um, you have to watch your younger siblings because your mom's not around, right? Um, so especially for these kids who are mostly low income, I would be pretty frustrated if someone said they were they were privileged or they they were they were selfish or didn't know what they wanted. Now, if we're talking about suburban public school kids, who I think that's generally who they're talking about when you're saying that. You didn't study them, right? I didn't really study. I studied one school that was had a little bit of those kids. Um, right. No, I, I take that back. Uh, both of the schools in San Diego were actually a big mix, so it okay. definitely had kids like that. Okay. Um, and, and for those some more suburban kids, um, in some ways that's true. I mean, uh, parents uh, give them a lot more options, but parents also give them a lot less freedom. I mean, there's a reason why today's kids have a lot less sex and drink less booze than uh, their parents' generation did, uh, or even my generation did, and it's and it's because of helicopter parenting is they're constantly texting with their parents under surveillance um, yeah they're in constant i mean i was sort of just you know free-range kid and i was one of the last i'm 37 now and i think i was one of the last generations to be that because i didn't have a cell phone until i was 22. right and, and so you know I, I think that i think there's just a very different way to be a kid um now um, for for middle class kids that is is much more policed is much more surveyed uh, in some ways therefore is easier but in some ways is actually much more stressful um, because there is a ton more expectations um, and that was true of the low income kids as well that there's just there's a lot of expectation about about who you're going to be and how you're going to be that person and um, and then you know, this is a separate thing. But then if they're in your 20s, then you have a crippling amount of student debt um, often. And so, right. um, you know, there are all kinds of ways that I'm just. Uh, are young, I would say the one thing that's true is young people are probably more distractible. That's the one stereotype that I think is right. Um, but I would say that's true of old people now too. I think just anyone with a cell phone is more distractible. Which is everyone. Which is everybody. But I think that's true, that, that, that cell phones right. have made all of us more distractible. And that is a problem for- All of us. Kids and the teachers, honestly. The teachers would right. keep checking their phone. And so, I mean, um, it's a, that's a struggle. Uh, and I think that's, that is a real difference. If you liked that episode of the Culture Feed podcast, you will soon be able to access part two of the discussion on the Culture Feed podcast page. In the second half of the interview, Macbeth and Gwen discuss the value of principles, differing views of what constitutes respect, and Gwen's optimism about the future of education. Look for it soon at culturefeed.com slash podcast, where you can also subscribe to our podcast series and share our podcast on any of your favorite podcast sites. Thanks for tuning into the Culture Feed podcast.